Does manual treasury management and operations have your crypto business stuck in the slow lane? Scale up and speed ahead with Fireblocks, the number one platform for crypto operations and trading pros that makes custody, settlement, and rebalancing quick and easy. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all of their crypto assets in one place. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. Eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust, Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. We have a very exciting episode of the show for you today. We have Doquan, co-founder of Terraform Labs on the other side. Thank you so much for coming on. I've been really trying to get you on the other side of the mic because I'm super keen to chat with you and just get the whole growth story of Terra. So thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, just so that there's no confusion, the block just messaged me a grand total of once. <laughs> I've got some people to yell at if that's the case. Now, I want to know if there's a certain price at which you will tattoo a picture of Mike Novogratz's face on your arm. Is there a price that you do that? Uh, there isn't enough money in the world. There's no chance that that happens. No chance. Okay. Well, now that we got that out of the way, we can kind of dive into it. So I don't want to make this a what is Luna or Terraform Labs or Terra, but you know we have a lot of institutionally focused investors, traders, regulators listen to the show. Knock, knock. Hello, regulators. What is it that you've been working on? Give us the quick 102. Yeah. So when I first started looking into crypto, what was kind of fascinating to me was for an industry that brands itself, the cryptocurrency industry, almost nobody was working on the problem of trying to make better currency. So people are either trying to make some niche apps, not that apps are bad, but trying to create like an online casino or like a betting market or something like that, or trying to take what is essentially logically reduced to a server and trying to make it faster or to add like a privacy feature. So basically, like most of the innovation was going to apps and servers. Whereas I felt like the most important thing that crypto could try to tackle is to try to create better currency. That is, how can you create sort of a decentralized version of money that is easier to spend and more attractive to hold than you can the US dollar or the Korean one or, or like the Australian dollar? Got it. So recently, you guys have been making headlines for the Luna Foundation Guard, LFG, raising, I think, something over 2.2 or around 2.2 billion for a Bitcoin reserve, 
with a long-term goal of hitting something like $10 billion. So that Bitcoin will be used as the reserve asset for UST, which is the largest algorithmic stablecoin on the platform. Why a reserve this big? What's the thinking there? Yeah, so to give a little bit of context in terms of how Terra mechanically works, unlike the better known stablecoins like USDC or USDT, there isn't a physical dollar in a bank account that is backing a unit of stablecoin. Instead, the protocol uses a set of game theoretic incentives to stabilize the value of the stablecoin at around the peg. So the idea is that at any given time, a person can burn a dollar's worth of Luna in order to mint one Terra USD, and vice versa, you can always redeem one Terra USD for a dollar's worth of Luna. So insofar as the Luna token has some sort of market value, you can always try to arbitrage against the system in order to mint and redeem stablecoins. And just in case that depegging event happens, so for example, if Terra USD is trading for 90 cents, an arbitrager can simply buy up Terra USD from the open market and then trade it against the protocol for a dollar's worth of Luna, thereby capturing 10% arbitrage profit that way. And vice versa, if Terra USD is ever trading at a dollar ten, you can buy a dollar's worth of Luna from the open market, mince Terra USD, and then sell that to capture 10% profit on the other side. So we've had some pretty early success with that. So Terra USD is currently about $16 billion which currently puts it around third or fourth place in terms of the market cap of outstanding stablecoins and the largest among the decentralized variety that are not backed by fiat. So recently we made an announcement to start to build Bitcoin, what we call decentralized Forex reserves to protect UST against short-term demand fluctuations of the currency. And we have a couple of motivations for this. So number one, the reason why we started to add Bitcoin collateral is that we believe that TerraUSD has a chance to be the largest stablecoin across multiple different blockchains, not just the largest stablecoin on the Terra blockchain. So this adds some stabilization, right? Yes. So that's the economic argument. But I think there's also a diplomatic argument as well, because while Terra users are very comfortable with the quality of Luna as collateral, as we're sort of exporting TerraUSD to different blockchains like Solana or Avalanche, or Ethereum, uh, users of those various different platforms don't really feel about Luna in the same way as users of the Terra blockchain would. So there's sort of tribalism that kicks in when people start to evaluate the quality of Terra USD as a stablecoin versus some of the other options that they might have. But what anyone in crypto finds difficult to question is the soundness and the quality of Bitcoin as collateral backing a stablecoin. So I think as Terra USD becomes heavily backed by Bitcoin, I think it's going to build more bridges and make it easier for TerraUSD to expand to different ecosystems. It's kind of funny. You're like the anti-Nixon in a sense. You're implementing like a gold standard 2.0 for the digital world. Instead of gold backing greenbacks, Bitcoin serving as a reserve collateral for UST. Yeah, so I actually think... Had Bitcoin been easier to bridge into different platforms, I think that would already have happened. So in DeFi summer, ETH started to become sort of a reserve currency of choice for a lot of protocols and DAOs that were built on top of Ethereum. And that's because it was just sort of already there, right? So it was very accessible for projects that were already building on top of Ethereum because it is the largest and sort of the reference currency of the Ethereum ecosystem. But it stands to reason that Bitcoin being the largest crypto with 
the most distributed ownership, the soundest monetary policy, that if Bitcoin were to get a credible layer two, in, in some sense, in one of the largest smart contract platforms in the world, then in that case, its status is reserve currency. So sort of the Bitcoin standard, if you will, being used to back stable coins, backing DAOs, backing lots of different DeFi applications that could actually come to fruition. But how does it work? So how do you go out and source billions of dollars in Bitcoin? Uh, you press a buy button. <laughs> yeah, just on exchange. Like, do you have your Coinbase Pro account and you're just hitting buy, buy, buy? No, I mean, we don't do that. So generally how it operates is that we have monthly meetings of the LFG Council. So these are seven builders, uh, leading builders in the Terra ecosystem. So some of the active companies are teams like, you know, Delphi, Jump, SCB10X, and uh, so on and so forth. So we sort of gather together and then we decide how much Bitcoin we're going to be buying, like over that month. And then over that month, we just buy a little bit every day. Got it. And that's just through an exchange or through an OTC setup? Yes. I mean, you're ultimately going to be, I think you said this, one of the largest holders of Bitcoin. What then happens after that? Yeah. So mechanically, how this would work is that we would bridge over the Bitcoin into the Terra blockchain. And it's as if there's going to be a special DEX whereby people can trade in wrapped Bitcoin to mint USD. And then vice versa, you can trade in USD to redeem Bitcoin. So how this would work is that uh, if you trade in one pair USD, you can get 99 cents worth of Bitcoin. And then if you trade in a dollar's worth of Bitcoin, you'll be able to get one pair USD. So by leaving some sort of asymmetric spread between mints and redemption, you can guarantee that the reserve only protects during a time where USD is depegged. If you hearken back to the Hasleon days of March 2020, all the algo stablecoins kind of got blown out. And during times of, you know, chaotic, volatile markets, you see depegging across stablecoins. Coinmetrics had a really great report on this, but this is effectively, at least you hope, going to solve those issues, make people trust the system a little bit more, which will be huge for adoption. Yeah, exactly. What about you as a person? You know, we've had guests on before who run projects or who run blockchains, you know, Novogratz has called you the Vitalik of, of the East. <laughs> yeah, he said something like that on Twitter. You know how he is. I'm wondering, like, and one guest took this the wrong way and kind of popped off at me on Twitter about it. I don't think cult of personality is an insulting term, but what does it feel being at the epicenter of something and having, you know, cadres of, of followers really kind of Worship might be dramatic, but looking at you in the same way as like an Andre or a Danny or a Vitalik and sort of having this cult following. So kind of an interesting thing about me is I'm actually pretty introverted. So, you know, socially, I spend most of my time just either by myself or with my wife. You know, the right way to characterize my personality is sort of a very low key type of passion. So generally very calm not very emotional. Whereas my Twitter persona is not like that at all, right? So people just assume I'm very aggressive. <laughs> I like to make fun of people and things like that. But I, I think it's just one of those things that came about as you interact with a wide multitude of personalities on crypto Twitter. 
And then I think it's about 50% defense mechanism to protect yourself against people like that. And then the other 50% sort of a semi-successful attempt at being funny. I wouldn't say it's a cult of personality per se. Like the tarot community can be quite rabid, if you will. But it sort of cuts both ways, right? So during the bull markets, like uh, a lot of builders are, there's a bit of like cultish behavior going on. But then again, like when the charts turn the other way, then it's like knives out. <laughs> yeah, knives out, salt on the wounds. It's an interesting dynamic that you're kind of bringing up here. Do you think, and, and you kind of mentioned it earlier with this diplomatic approach to sort of adding Bitcoin into the equation, will there always be this tribalism, this sort of religiosity underpinning each chain? Or are we just giving each other the piss and it's not really real, it's just on Twitter? Behind the scenes, people are a bit more normal. I think the reason why people turn tribal is because they feel that the success of another ecosystem cannibalizes from the success of their own. So a lot of traders and people in crypto tend to look inwards, right? There is sort of a finite pie of people that can you know, use blockchains, buy coins, and then if this ecosystem does well, then it means that there's less buy demand or less usage that could have gone to my chain mm. that's going to somewhere else. So which is why I think people turn tribal, they fight, they criticize other people's bags. But you know, there's a couple of dimensions. So I think first is the fact that we're going to live in a multi-chain world, I think is inevitable. And that's because block space is scarce. Similar to how not everybody can afford to live in New York, right? I think Various different blockchains, the composition of these blockchains could change over time. But I think there's going to be multiple blockchains similar to how there are multiple cities. And each of these cities are going to cater to a different audience and it's going to develop their own culture. Right. So for example, you you'd be able to see stuff like LA that's like sprawling, right, across like a very wide landmass. And this could be things like Cosmos or Avalanche, uh, which does horizontal scaling. And then like Hong Kong could be like Solana, like landmass is emitted, but like you build up very tall buildings in order to scale. And then I think different use cases are going to fit into different types of cities. Now, where I feel like, you know, crypto tribalism is going to change over the next few years is similar to how all nation states kind of compete with each other. Hmm. So for example, like Americans make fun of Canadians all the time, right? And then Canadians like try to unsuccessfully to make fun of Americans all the time. But you sort of develop these diplomatic relationships of mutual respect and sort of trade corridors between you know nation states in a way that is mutually beneficial. So you sort of have a competitive and a cooperative relationship coexisting at the same time. And I think that's going to be applicable to, for blockchains as well. Will DAI have a future in this crypto <laughs> geography map? <laughs> so I actually think DAI is a great platform to get leverage. For example, like there are lots of cases where you can get leverage on, you know, volatile assets like ETH or other ERC20s at a more cost-effective basis than you can get on Aave or Compound. Now, the issue that happened with that is that demand for the stablecoin scaled up too quickly relative to the demand for leverage for volatile assets, which is why they needed to use USD as a primary collateral. I think if Thai wasn't a part of, let's say, the Curve 3 pool, which sucks in a lot of stablecoin demand and is sort of existed independently as a stablecoin slash leverage protocol, I think it could have been okay. But I think the future for Prudai should be something where they try to lessen the amount of exposure that they have to centralized stablecoins 
now it's like 50% or something. Yeah, it's like 55, 55 to 60% USDC, which sort of defeats the purpose of having like a decentralized stablecoin platform in the first place. Yeah, because you imagine if the centralized sort of pipes and plumbing were to shut down for whatever reason, then what happens? Right. So it could survive if it sort of lessens its dependence on centralized stable coins. But who knows? It might die by your hands. The die might die. This is what you <laughs> tweeted. That's what I woke up to yesterday. Wouldn't pay too much attention to my Twitter, to be honest. <laughs> well, listen, I, I kind of say the same thing to people I meet in person at conferences. They'll say, I, I follow you on Twitter and I'll respond. I'm oh so very sorry. It's a weird tool, but it's an effective tool, I think, to like grow community and to engage with an audience. But there is definitely a double-edged sword there. One thing that I want to like lean into is this narrative that you laid out at the beginning of the show, which is this is supposed to be the cryptocurrency space. Currencies are at a fundamental level, a medium of exchange. And when I think of the adoption curve or cycle of every person or institution that gets into crypto, that is the first roadblock. It was the first roadblock for someone like Ray Dalio. I remember he was in our offices when I was at Business Insider. And the CEO at the time asked him, what's your opinion on Bitcoin? He said, it's not a currency because it's not a medium of exchange. I remember getting reports back then from Morgan Stanley there was one specific report about merchant usage of Bitcoin. And at the time, it was dwindling because it was kind of too expensive. People don't really want to spend Bitcoin because there's obviously this inclination to hodl in the hopes that price appreciates. So here we have a crypto platform that is really trying to make it easy to spend, use it as a medium of exchange between merchants and consumers. How is it going though? Like how many folks are using it in this capacity are going to the stores or certain stores getting their proverbial cup of coffee with the stable coin? So my thinking of this topic has changed over the years a little bit. For people that don't know the history of Terra, we first started out building payment platforms. So we first founded Chai in South Korea, which was an e-wallet. And the hope was that we would deeply embed the ability to pay in Terra stablecoins into basically all the stores. And the idea was that we would sort of close the retail loop on things that people could do with Terra stablecoins until such a way that people didn't really need to keep any care of W in order to live in Korea. Now, a couple of you know changes in thinking. So when we first started to roll out these payment platforms, we were the only people that were doing it. But now every neobank and fintech platform, like from Venmo to PayPal to some of the Asian players, they're all rolling out the ability to buy and invest crypto. And they're trying to embed stablecoin payments into their settlement rails. So a lot of the value proposition that we were going for uh, in the meat space, I think is rapidly being commoditized. Now, having said that, I think the bigger opportunity isn't to allow crypto people to use crypto to pay for things in the in the real world, so as in buying a proverbial cup of coffee, if you will, but making it very easy for stablecoins to be the currency of the internet. So instead of like trying to export our currency so that it can be used in their world, 
I think it's more about making it very easy to do transactions that are programmable in our world. So I, I sort of have this thesis that the reason why crypto is interesting is because it's the one thing that's going to accelerate the great migration of human activity from the physical world to the internet. So prior to fungible tokens and NFTs coming along, there were no property rights on the internet. Like a billionaire and a middle school student would own exactly the same things, the same LinkedIn profile, the same Twitter badge and what have you. So it wasn't really possible to build up property rights on the internet. So the only business models were advertising or e-commerce. Crypto changes all of this because you can now own things. So you can build businesses, you can build communities, you can have lives that are wholly dedicated to inside the internet, inside digital spaces, and then the physical world could sort of take a backseat. Now, this it has a couple of different implications, but I think the first is that the power shift of where we tend to place value in our political systems is going to shift from the physical world to the digital, right? So like nation states, governments, congressional elections, a lot less interesting, I would bet, for people that have spent time in crypto over the last two years, because our mind space and you know where we tend to place the value on our property has rapidly shifted to online DAOs and those Discord servers where we spend so much of our time. And I think stablecoins have a valuable role to play in that transition, because no matter what, people still denominate their network financial transactions in the fiat currency of their local jurisdiction. And I think it stands to the reason that the spending power and you know, fiat-pegged stablecoins role as a medium of exchange is going to extend to digital spaces. And it's going to be easier to do that, given that these things are fully programmable without any restriction. So instead of coffee, it's going to... You can buy a dragon. Yeah. Or some plots in the metaverse. No, not those. <laughs> no. Design like a podcast studio in there. <laughs> Can do. Having trouble keeping pace with the crypto boom? When your business is scaling up and your portfolio is growing, you don't want to waste precious time on manual treasury management or settling and rebalancing. Fireblocks can handle that for you with smart, scalable solutions for your crypto business, along with industry-leading security and expertise. They'll take care of the back end so you can focus on the big picture. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all their crypto assets in one place. Coinbase Prime fully integrates crypto trading and custody on a single platform and gives clients the best all-in pricing in their network using their proprietary smart order router and algorithmic execution. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have already used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Build a unified investment portfolio with one of the most trusted names in crypto. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. Are you eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis is here to help. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. 
gain unparalleled visibility and maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting chainalysis.com now. What do you think of the metaverse? So, I mean, I think people are like second lifing this too much <laughs> in the sense that I think, I think people are just like too obsessed with this idea that you should build like an entire digital space from scratch and it should feel dystopian and sci-fi. But okay. So uh, first of all, I think the word metaverse too overplayed. What should we change it to? What should we call it? I don't know. Those new home. <laughs> <laughs> we get our marketing guys on it. But I think it should really be just extensions of the applications that we're using in a way that's a little bit more immersive, right? So for example, if it's like a MMORPG that we happen to be playing, like we could just like extend those currencies so that it can be more usable in existing products. So for example, like if I'm playing MapleStory, for instance, like a nice first step could be creating a bank within MapleStory mm. where people can go and deposit their MapleStory game cash, and then it gives you 19% yield on Anchor, right? Or it could be like a stock exchange that's built into the experience and people yeah. can just like buy M assets on there. When I talk to people about this concept, the first thing they say or their first instinct is this dystopian, why do I want to wear a VR headset and escape from the world? Which I agree. I don't want to do that either. My forehead would get too sweaty. But the interesting thing is, to your point, well, you're already kind of in various metaverses. You know, do you play video games? Do you check Instagram every second of the day? These are realities that are outside of the analog. And the difference here with what we're calling metaverse is you have an opportunity to financialize it and to leverage it in ways that you couldn't, to move it outside of this world, to move the value you've accrued outside of that own world and leverage it elsewhere is a very fascinating and interesting thing that's never been really possible before. So it's not so much that your day-to-day -day will be different, but it's what your existing online relationships, engagements, the way you can leverage that is going to change radically. Imagine a down payment on a, on a house with your blue check. I think it's more about like breaking down barriers for your existing applications, right? So like the boundaries between like Twitter and like OpenSea demolishing, I think that's one of like a pretty great example where you can take existing property and then start to build provenance around it by using in your social interactions, like putting it as a profile picture on Twitter is kind of boring. Yeah. But what if like you could use this as like an identity passport to take it to, I don't know, like Tinder, for instance, and then. There's a dating service that matches exclusively on NFT PFPs. That's kind of weird. But that could be possible. Uh, we had Darren Lau on the show. I don't know if you know him or not. I imagine you might. Hmm. But he said that most of his friends would probably rather own a house in the metaverse than a house in the physical world. I think this is a like a phenomenon that is not well appreciated among older demographies, how internet native our generation is. Why do you think we'd prefer that? Why do you think those are the preferences that exist now? Well, so I think it's a transition that's been happening for a long time, right? So uh, for example, like if you think about like a typical English gentleman from the 1700s, for instance, he probably lived in like a nice manner, right? 
like a manor in Worcestershire or something like that. And then there would be servants and butlers and things like that. And there would be 20 rooms in the manor and there would be a nice garden with roses. So, you know, the stuff that you read from Sherlock Holmes, but the typical affluent person today doesn't live in a house generally. Like you might live in a nice apartment in a city, but even then, I don't think you can extrapolate a linear relationship between how nice somebody's house is and how affluent this person is. In fact, most people that are wealthy in crypto actually don't really have those nice things because they don't care about them. And I think that's because human activity has already started to move a lot from what type of house you have. Like you don't have a bunch of guests that are coming over and you don't throw balls in your manor anymore, right? Like all you're going to do is just be in your bedroom and then watch Netflix. And then you might eat some breakfast on your kitchen counter for a little bit. So it sort of removes the necessity, any utility whatsoever, from having a house that's going to be a ton of upkeep and ton of maintenance, time, which you could rather spend buying NFTs on <laughs> OpenSea or trading coins. So I, I think sometime distant in the future, you, you might even imagine situations where I think the physical living spaces are going to get smaller and smaller because it's going to matter less and the cost per unit space of real estate is only going to go up, right? So you can even imagine situations where people live in tiny, tiny houses like like the what you see in like Hong Kong or Tokyo, but they're going to ball out in buying nice digital spaces or NFTs or something that is akin to game items or some utility accessory that could adorn their persona online. Well, because it's all about where are you spending your time? The English dandy that you're sort of describing would have these balls or whatever have you, or have to entertain important people. But even if I think about where we're all doing most of our engagements with important people today, it's mostly online or in the metaverse or in a discord. And so if I'm meeting someone important for the first time in those worlds, it doesn't matter what my house looks like because they're never going to see it but they will see my um, PFP or my skins. It's so weird. I remember when I first went into, I think it was Crypto Voxels or one of them, and I didn't have any clothes. I didn't have any skins. And I'm not really a gamer, but I immediately felt like a very true nakedness. I was like, if I'm going to be hanging around here, I need to get clothes, (laughs) which to me, like, Afterwards, it was, I was so struck by that. I was so struck by the fact that I was embarrassed that my avatar was naked and that people would think I'm like a povo, a poor. <laughs> yeah. When I was growing up in Korea, a lot of my friends spent you know, hours and hours playing MMORPG games because we had a little bit of an early adoption in those gaming categories. So for some of us, we would spend like 10 hours a day playing MMORPGs, you know, skipping school and just playing. And then for some of my friends, they would date, they would make girlfriends <laughs> with random like elves or like warriors on the game. And then they would exchange gifts, but they would never meet. So it was the most bizarre thing ever where you had a bunch of teenagers where I would say the desire for reproduction, I, I would assume is non-trivial, <laughs> but at the same time, they would actually never meet. They would just be on calls, meet in the game, exchange gifts, usually in the form of game items. And then that would just be like their dating life for six months. That is strange. What do you think the world looks like in 10 years? Like we're kind of getting to that question. And how does Terra fit into it? Like what's the vision there? Yeah. So as I said, I think 
Web3 marks a valuable opportunity for people to spend more time in digital spaces than in the physical world. So this feels super dystopian, but I think it's inevitable, A. And B, I think it's great for lots of different reasons. So for example, like one, it sort of flattens geographic disparities in compensation and opportunity. So if you are an anonymous person and then you have access to a computer and the internet, like you can be one of the leading contributors to a major DAO, irrespective of where you might happen to be based, what your gender is, what you look like, your physical stature. So all those things become flattened in sort of the anonymity of the internet. And I think that's huge because whereas I think talent is uniformly distributed across all different parts of the world, across different races and genders, opportunity definitely is not. So usually like if you end up in some of the epicenters of where capital and companies might happen to be housed, like SF and New York and you know Hong Kong, like you happen to have a lot more opportunity than somebody that is not in those places. So I think in terms of providing equal opportunity of access, I think transitioning to the internet, most economic activity to the internet, I think it's going to be really exciting. Now, I think the future is going to be a little bit weird where you're going to see like all of our previous sort of compartmentalized concepts like games and, you know, social media services and DeFi apps all sort of start to merge in together. So I sort of see a world where you can sort of export your identity to, let's say, something that can most closely be described as a village. And in this village, let's say that people have some sort of congress whereby they can debate various different important issues of the DAO. So in which case it could be kind of like Bitcoin Talks Forum or E3 Search or, you know, Terra, Agora and things like that. And then given that this place of discussion is a valuable resource, they might hire some people to protect it. You know, if this experience is gamified, it could be a dragon trying to attack the Congress in the village. And then like your full-time job could be like a paladin or a knight that keeps dragons at bay. And then you have some sort of performance bounty that you get whenever you slay a dragon, for instance. And an analogy to this could be like a white hacker that protects uh, traditional values that can unify. So I, I think all the apps and games and services that we use today are going to slowly start to melt together. Similar to how, like, if you go to stores in a certain neighborhood, like all the shopkeeps kind of know each other. These are different houses. But at the same time, they, they share the common property of being housed in a similar neighborhood and then sharing the same infrastructure. So I think the human transition to digital spaces is going to be absolutely game-changing. And I think it's going to be an important way to provide equal opportunity for humanity. And what I want to be spending time on is to make sure that that future happens a little bit faster by building apps that I think are going to be value-added to, to the space and play a small part in making sure that Terra is the leading currency of that future. Do regulators get in the way of this future? Do they serve as an impediment? <laughs> you know, that's a good question. And I'm sure, as most people know, I had some run-ins with regulators in the past. Are you still suing them? The SEC, I think? Well, it was an administrative lawsuit, so I'm sure there's going to be you know, disagreements in terms of what's appropriate and what's not between us and the SEC going forward. But listen, the traditional exchanges have sued their regulator. There's parallels in traditional finance as well. The exchanges have sued the SEC. Right. So you're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the only thing that I wanted to say is, you know, like regulators that we've interfaced in other countries can even be more aggressive, but I, I kind of get it. A regulator's job is to protect people from, from danger. 
right? So in the case of a financial regulator, it's to make sure that people don't get scammed. And I think most people in the crypto industry would agree, you know, there are a lot of scams in the crypto industry. So it stands to reason that if as industry practice, we fail to self-regulate investor losses and people losing their funds through, you know, mismanagement or through not being able to weed out scams correctly, it's the sense the reason that regulators would be worried. Now, if we're worried about a future where regulators just clamp down on crypto and try to shut down all innovation, I don't believe in that future because crypto fundamentally is a freedom technology. It tries to empower the individual to be able to do things that they couldn't do previously. And insofar as it is a freedom technology, it is fundamentally innovative. And I think no matter how slow the regulatory agency might be, any regulatory agency, or how sort of immune to change, I think there's always people within those regulatory agencies that stand with innovation and want to see more innovation happen. You know what would be cool? What? If one day there's a come to Jesus moment from a specific regulator, I don't think it'll be in the US, but it could be somewhere in the world. And they realize, oh, wait actually this blockchain thing is pretty transparent and if we just use it and leverage it we can sniff out nefarious actors and maybe there's like a dao like a regulatory dao and it becomes like infused into crypto and so the regulator is almost like not this like third party entity looking in but like at the heart of the ecosystem and almost like automated checking and looking, something like that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think a more short-term adoption by nation states of crypto is going to be because there's a lot of demand for de-dollarization across the world. For example, like the US using sanctions to freeze all of Russia's accounts, irrespective of whether that was the moral thing to do, I think that sent a clearing call to lots of different other nation states across the world that the USD is not neutral, right? Which is why like Saudi Arabia is in talks with China to try to denominate petrol in the Chinese yuan. Why, you know, a lot of Forex reserves and central banking reserves are starting to transition out of the dollar into different types of assets. So I think crypto is going to have a valuable role to play in that transition because I don't know if a major nation state is ready to pick up crypto yet, but I think there's going to be more El Salvador's. And if there's 10 El Salvadors, and I think a medium-sized nation state would start to look into adding Bitcoin to treasuries, and uh, it just falls like dominoes from there. Yeah. It seems like South Korea is becoming more friendly with their recently elected president. We had hashed on recently. He said that some of his folks were at the Blue House. It's pretty interesting to see like a shift here in the United States. It's kind of been each administration has either not cared about it or has been somewhat slightly aggressive towards the idea of it. I actually think Korea presents like a really interesting blueprint because regulators literally got ratioed. So what I mean is uh, for the longest time, they, they took a very ham-fisted approach to cracking down on crypto. They tried to vilify crypto companies operating in the country. They tried to levy taxes even before a tax code was apparent you know, lots of investigations and things like that. But Korea is now at a state where almost a third of the population are either own crypto or are trading crypto. Mm. So this makes it really difficult for politicians to run on an anti-crypto agenda. So in this presidential election, both of the candidates ran on a pro-crypto agenda. 
And one of them issued NFTs to give out to people that attended his rallies, which is absolutely crazy. So the, the way that the government got ratioed is they pushed back a tax code, which you know they're fully ready to implement by one year prior to the presidential election. And now that he got elected, he pushed it back another year. So zero taxes in Korea for crypto for at least the next couple of years. ICOs are going to be permitted. So no Howey test or anything like that. There will be a regulatory framework by which you can do ICOs as long as you know, you're not scamming or defrauding investors and lots more licenses for crypto exchanges. So it's going to be, I think, pretty interesting. And it just goes to show that in democratic nations, if a critical mass of people want something, then they shall have it. Yeah. The people. We're going to give the power to the people. Such a great movie. <laughs> so what else are you excited for maybe outside of Terra? So like one of the things that I realized while building Terra is that I, I'm kind of a toy maker. So I get really excited when I'm building like a new app that just hasn't existed and then just taking it from zero to one. And running TFL or like doing politics, like in the Terra ecosystem, that's a little less interesting. So there's a couple of things that I've been working on recently. One of them is fungible labor markets. So how that works is at any given time, any open source contributor can put up their hours for sale. And then a large DAO, let's say it could be Avalanche or, you know, the Terra DAO can purchase like a lot of those hours in bulk. And then they can give redemption keys to various different applications in their ecosystem. So the idea is that you sort of upend the employment, traditional employment model. And then the idea is that as long as you can issue tokens that will be bought by DAOs and then redeemed by a certain set of people in an ecosystem. So in that case, like you can spend time doing what you love while at the same time, you don't have to be beholden to an employer or go to offices or anything like that. But an interesting byproduct of a model like this is that now you have fungible time tokens that have market value, right? So you can then use these time tokens as collateral to take out a loan, right? So it's an interesting transition of DeFi from a purely speculative vehicle to a productive allocator of capital. It's pretty interesting. Is there anything that you guys can kind of stand up in that space? So we actually just kicked off this project already. It's called Kronos. And um, the founder is, you know, he was one of the early employees at Terra and He's actually behind this wall. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> hey, how's it going? Yeah. <laughs> kind of bringing it back to the Bitcoin thread, because this is what everyone's interested about. Can it go beyond 10 billion? Like, could you guys keep ramping this up? And will you do it quietly? You know, uh, someone asked, like, would you find yourself flat footed because you're coming out and like saying that you're doing it? Maybe that brings price up so then you end up buying at a higher price is there not enough strategy behind it is there too much i think there's a couple of layers here so the first is we are buying bitcoin now because we're trying to bootstrap the reserve but the future model of terra usd is that like a certain percentage of new usd that is being minted goes to buy bitcoin all the time to build up reserves so it's as if that if a dollar in, in usd is being minted let's say 60 cents of that is going to burn luna and then 40% of that is going to build Bitcoin reserves. So I, I think it's going to scale indefinitely insofar as USD endures and keeps growing. And there wasn't any way around 
uh, for us to do this, except to declare that we're building these reserves. Because it's not like a one-off thing that we're doing, nor is it a treasury management strategy. Right? We're trying to build reserves for the entire ecosystem. And there really wasn't a way around for us to do this quietly, because as we're sort of trying to build a reserve for the entire ecosystem, we needed to let our community know what our intentions were. Super cool. Well, sir, I had a lot of fun. I'd like to thank our guests for joining the show. Doe, thanks so much for stopping by The Scoop to chat with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Where can our listeners learn more about you, what you're doing? Where can they maybe troll you on Twitter? <laughs> so I'm at StableQuan at Twitter. So if you want to troll me, my inbox is generally accessible of people that are trying to fish me for various things. <laughs> so if you want to join that crowd, please be my guest. But if you have any suggestions or questions or things that are going on in the ecosystem, follow me on Twitter, StableQuan, or at Terra the Money for the overall team. Great. Well, thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back with you again with another great guest. Have an amazing day, everybody.